You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's dark. You're sitting in front of the mirror getting ready for bed. There's nobody else in the house. You see something move in the corner of your eye. You glance to your right, but you don't see anything. Another minute goes by, and you think you see movement again. So you slowly turn to your left, but again, the room is empty. You turn back around, and staring you face to face in the mirror is a cat. You jump back, because you don't have a cat, and there's no cat in the room. But there he is, staring at you in the mirror. Welcome to Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week, we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Now, step into the supernatural world of pets with your Paranormal Pets ghostly host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I am your host, Brandy Stark, and we've got yet another Paranormal Pets potpourri. I didn't think there was one left, but uh, by golly, we've got a few items left in our ancient crypto bestiary, like the manticore, the basilic, maybe the dragon. And we also have some nice stuff on Alexander fighting monsters in India. And if we have time, we will do an episode on the Skinwalker, because I only touched on that in the last episode, and these are completely fascinating and absolutely horrific entities. So, we will get started with this right after these messages. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. Are you confused by the overwhelming number of supplements for your dog? Developed by a veterinarian, Dr. Baker's all-natural canine system saver is designed to address many of the common problems your dog faces today, including allergies, inflammatory diseases, arthritis, hip dysplasia, geriatric problems, and more. Restore and maintain your dog's health with Dr. Baker's all-natural canine system saver. Order two bottles today and receive 20% off plus free shipping. Visit Canine System SystemSaver.com. To get this special offer, enter coupon code RS20 at checkout. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome back. We are taking a look at some historic figures still. Alexander the Great uh, is a fairly interesting guy. I mean, if you have the Great as part of your name, then obviously it means you've done quite well. He is not, in my personal opinion, quite the same level as Augustus Caesar, for whom my heart beats, but... Alexander has a really interesting experience. Essentially, uh, as you know, he does conquer most of the known world. He is out of Macedonia, which is kind of the, the Greeks consider it kind of the Greek area wannabe, if you will. He is a phenomenal fighter. 
He begins to conquer around the age of 19, and he creates a monumental cosmopolitan empire, one of the first the world had seen, that combined Greek, uh, Middle Eastern, and uh, Egyptian ideologies. So he wasn't quite done with that. You know, he really wanted to keep conquering, and what a lot of people don't realize is he got a piece of India, kind of. India did not last long, and Indian Alexander did not get along well. So this is kind of an entry that talks about what Alexander encountered. This is what he records as he marches his Macedonian army into India. This is uh, an analysis by Stephen T. Asma, and it is from the Monsters of Bedford Spotlight Reader compilation by Andrew J. Hoffman. After defeating King Porus in the Punjab region, Alexander the Great chased the tyrant further into India. However, Alexander reported, it commonly happens that when man achieves some success, this is pretty soon followed by adversity. Lost in the deserts of the Indus Valley, Alexander and his army found themselves dehydrated and demoralized by a fierce and hostile environment. Alexander relates the frightening events of that campaign in a letter to his old teacher, Aristotle. Marching through the desert, Alexander's forces were so thirsty that some of the soldiers began to lick iron, drink oil, and even drink their own urine. A devoted soldier named Xerophis found a tiny puddle of water in the hollow of a rock, poured it into his helmet, and brought it to Alexander to drink. Alexander was moved by the soldier's generosity, and he poured the water on the ground in front of the whole army to demonstrate that he, as their leader, would suffer with them. The show of strength and solidarity gave inspiration to the troops, and they marched on until they finally reached a river. But frustration rose further when they discovered that the river was poisonous and undrinkable. In the middle of this large river sat a strange island castle. Alexander tried to communicate with the naked Indians therein, asking them where he might find good water, but they were unresponsive and took to hiding. 200 lightly armed soldiers were sent wading through the water to try and pressure the castle's inhabitants for help. When the soldiers were a quarter of the way through the river, a terrible turbulence began to churn and the men began screaming and disappearing under the water. We saw emerging from the deep, Alexander explained, a number of hippopotamuses bigger than elephants. We could only watch and wail as they devoured the Macedonians whom we had sent to swim the river. Alexander was so enraged by this calamity that he gathered together his guides, local men who had betrayed them by leading them into this hostile land, and marched them into the deadly water. Then the hippopotamuses began to swarm like ants and devoured them all. After another day of marching, the exhausted and dehydrated soldiers finally came to a lake of sweet water and surrounding thick forest. All the men drank their fill and regained some of their strength. They pitched camp there at the Sweetwater Lake, cutting down huge swaths of forest to build 1,500 fires. They organized their legions into defense formations in case something should attack in the night and settle down to rest. When the moon began to rise, Alexander reports, scorpions suddenly arrived to drink at the lake. Then there came huge beasts and serpents of various colors, some red, some black, some white, some gold. The whole earth echoed with their hissing and filled us with considerable fear. It's not hard to imagine the terror soldiers don't lack fear after all, they just override it with stoic resolve. Anyone who has ever been in a strange forest after dark knows the pulse quickening fears that can take hold. If you've ever tent camped in a grisly country, you have the inkling of the dread that must have filled these soldiers. After killing some of the serpents, the soldiers were relieved to see the creatures retreat, but their hopes of finally getting some sleep were dashed when dragons began to slow their out of the woods towards them. They were bigger than the serpents, thicker than columns, with a crest on their heads, breast upright, their mouths wide open to spew poisonous breath. They came down from a nearby mountain and likewise made for the water. After an hour of fighting, the monsters had killed 30 servants and 20 soldiers. 
Alexander could see that his men were overwhelmed by the strangeness and resilience of the dragons, so he leapt into the fray and told them to follow his monster-slaying technique. Covering himself with his shield, he used nets to tingle the enemy and then struck at them viciously using his sword. Seeing his success, the soldiers rallied and finally drove back the dragons. But then came giant crabs and crocodiles. Spears and swords were ineffective against the impenetrable shields of these enormous crabs, so the soldiers used fire to kill many of them and drive the rest back into the forest. Alexander lists the subsequent parade of foes. It was now the fifth watch of the night, and we wanted to rest. But now white lions arrived, bigger than bulls. They shook their heads and roared loudly and charged at us, but we met them with the points of our hunting spears and killed them. There was a great consternation in the camp at all these alarms. The next creature to arrive were enormous pigs of various color. We fought them, too, in the same way. Then came bats as big as doves with teeth like those of men. They flew right in our face, and some of the soldiers were wounded. As if this onslaught were not enough, the men were astonished next to see an enormous beast larger than an elephant emerge from the forest. This behemoth, first appearing in the distance, headed for the lake to drink, but then saw Alexander's encampment. It turned quickly, revealing three ominous horns on its forehead, and began charging towards the men. Alexander ordered a squadron of soldiers to meet the earth-shaking juggernaut head-on, but they were overrun. After engaging the monster in a difficult battle for some time, the soldiers managed finally to kill it, but only after the creature had taken 76 Macedonian warriors to a bloody end. Still shocked and shaken, the tattered army watched with horror as oversized shrews, shrews, okay, skulked out of the darkness and fed upon the dead bodies strewn about the beach. Dawn mercifully broke and vultures began to line the banks of the lake. The ordeal was over. Then I was angry, Alexander says, at the guides who had brought us to this dreadful place. I had their legs broken and left them to be eaten alive by the serpents. I also had their hands cut off so that their punishment was proportionate to their crime. Don't take Alexander off. So what do we make of this? I love the doves with the teeth of men. Personally, I think I agree. I would have been completely frustrated. You know, you're exhausted. You're trying to rest. And here comes wave after wave after wave of animal. And it's interesting as well that they come pretty much one after the other. So the author says, Alexander's letter is almost certainly apocryphal, but it has formed an important part of legend and mythology of Alexander. Most of the letter's description of frightening creatures came from a book about India, written by Tzetzius in the 5th century BC. So although the events of the letter are fabulous, the monsters were commonplace in the ancient belief system. An ancient Greek or Roman citizen would have had no trouble believing the story of Alexander's difficulties in exotic India. In fact, Roman natural philosopher Pliny the Elder reinforces the point a few centuries later when he writes, India and regions of Ethiopia are especially full of wonders. There are men with their feet reversed and with eight toes on each foot. On many mountains, there are men with dogs' heads who are covered with wild beast skins. They bark instead of speaking and live by hunting and fowling, for which they use their nails. The story of Alexander's monster's battle at the Sweetwater Lake may be wholly invented by ancient writers, or it may be partially true with significant embellishments. Psychologists have identified a common human tendency to unconsciously exaggerate perceptions. These misperceptions are heavily influenced by our subjective emotional and cognitive states. People who are startled to discover a burglar in their home, for example, usually report the size of the intruder is much larger than he actually is. The cognitive scientist Dennis R. Prophet has amassed significant empirical data that demonstrates the tendency of those afraid of heights to actually see a greater distance between themselves and the ground. We don't need science to deliver up commonly understood truths, but scientific validation is helpful. Prophet speculates that perceptual exaggeration 
or spatial distances probably evolved as a safeguard to promote caution and prevent recklessness when our ancestors engaged in climbing activities. With respect to fear of falling, he explains the perceptual exaggeration of steep hills and high places increases their apparent threat and thereby promotes caution and adaptive advantage. Applying this Darwinian notion to our perception of monsters, it seems useful for humans to see a creature as more dangerous than it truly is. So the creatures described by Alexander's letter may have been a real exotic form of animals such as cobras and rhinoceroses, which were then multiplied and enlarged by fear-filled misperceptions. Add to this misperception the embellishment of self-report, the fisherman syndrome. Alexander had the fisherman syndrome. (laughs) And you have a recipe for a fantastic monster story. Regardless of the veracity of Alexander's description, the symbolic nature of the story is provocative, among other things. The narrative is a testament to masculine stereotypes of courage and resilience. Wherever we find monsters, there too we find heroes. So, kind of an interesting aspect there. (laughs) Poor Alexander, though. So, what do you think? Do you think Alexander saw all of this? Do you think he saw some of it? Did he see animals and exaggerate out of fear? Were these stories that maybe some of the men saw the animals and this is how they came back to Alexander as being more fearful? Kind of like the the grapevine effect where the deeds or the misdeeds of somebody grow every time the tale is told. Kind of an interesting idea, huh? But just in case you hadn't heard that, cryptozoology goes all the way back at least Alexander. And it is pretty interesting that a lot of this mythos would have been believed. There is um, a scholar, and I believe her last name is Smith, who actually, ironically, there's like a bazillion of those, but who does talk about ancients actually finding validation for some of these creatures from dinosaur bones. And I still think that's totally awesome and a great way to explain dinosaur bones don't just manifest. I mean, we've been discovering these things for a very long time and humankind is humankind now as it is then. And so there were explanations. (laughs) You know, it would be completely ironic if in 200 years, 2000 years, let's say 2000 years, it's a little bit more apt. If they don't look back and say, you know, those humans kept discovering dinosaur bones and they believed that they were giant lizards that once ruled the land, right? I do remember when I was a child, they actually said that Dinosaurs were cold-blooded, dim-witted, slow-moving, and that the Ice Ages killed them. And I remember when the theory came out about the asteroid hitting the Earth and actually being the devastating cause of dinosaur extinction, and the scientists being lamb-blasted. And it sounded like a ridiculous theory to me, too. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade when I first read it. But uh, here we are today, and it turns out that that meteor, just in case you, you know, forget if you happen to live in the state of Florida, that this is the state of madness, that uh, meteor hit in the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Of course it did. Why not? Everything happens in Florida. All right, so we will take a start, anyway, into the ancient crypto bestiary. Some of these odds and ends that uh, perhaps we haven't discussed before. These are some things that show up in Lucian's True History, Horace's Ars Poetica, The Art of Poetry. And these things include the Hydra, Basilisk, Manticore, the Harpies, Furies, Medusa. So we'll see how far we get with this. The analysis is uh, by David D. Gilmore. And while, again, we're not going to read the whole thing, it might be just a little bit interesting to pop through and see what some of these other creatures are. The inventory of Greek monsters is indeed a virtually endless category. The most familiar are known to every schoolchild who has studied classical mythology, tritons, 
satyrs, solenoid, blah, 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 centaurs, serpents, minotaur. I mean, I think we've talked about almost all of these. But how about something like the basilisk? The basilisk is depicted as a malignant serpent with gnashing teeth who killed people with a glance. Its eyes shot out a death-dealing ray. Pliny describes the basilisk in his natural history, written in Rome in AD 77, as follows. It rouses all snakes with its hiss and does not move its body forward. It manifolds coils like the other snakes, but advancing with its middle raised high. It kills not only by its touch, but also by its breath, scorches up grass, and bursts rocks. Its effect on other animals is disastrous. It is believed that once one was killed with a spear by a man on horseback, and the infection rising through the spear killed not only the rider, but also the horse. Oh, that is pretty bad. Yet to a creature so marvelous as this, indeed kings have often wished to see a specimen when safely dead, the venom of weasels is fatal. So yes, let me, let me just remind you that this actually says the venom of weasels is fatal. So fixed is the decree of nature that nothing shall be without its match. Huh. Just as terrible was the chimera, a title that has come down to us in the English to being a non-existent thing, a mirage, or the chimera, chimera, it was a composite beast with eagle's wings, green eyes, and a dragon's tail, described by Bullfinch as a fearful monster breathing fire. Then there was Geron, a monster giant eventually killed by Heracles at Tartestus near present-day Spain. Next was the exotic griffin, which we talked about. A powerful hybrid beast with a vulture's beak, white wings, red paws, and a blue neck. Its claws were said to be so large that people made them into drinking cups. The Greeks believed that the Griffon dwelled in the east, mainly in India, to guard gold treasure. Additionally, and equally as bizarre, was the Hydra, a reptile with nine heads, each with razor-toothed mouth, also killed by Heracles. The Hydra's monstrosity consisted not only in its multiple cephalic nature, but also in its promiscuous mingling of the realms of sea and earth, and in Homer, its ability to grow back its nine heads when lopped off by humans, and therefore to escape death. Another composite in Greek mythology was the manticore. It had the body of a red lion, a human face, three rows of teeth in each jaw, huh. a fatal sting like the scorpions in the end of the tail, and poison spines along the tail that could be shot like arrows in any direction. Some classical monsters were fierce giants rather than composites, for example, the great python of Ascar, which was said to be 60 cubits long, and the monstrous weasel Pastinaca, mm, my goodness, which killed trees by its powerful smell. <laughs> Poor weasels, man. They, they poison basilics, and they are so stinky, they destroy the forest. Mm. Uh, some Greek monsters were entirely airborne or part avian. The Stymphalian birds were giant death-dealing creatures. Their huge beaks and claws were made of the hardest brass, and they could shoot their feathers as if they were arrows. Sort of like Archangel from the X-Men. I do mean the comic book, not that really kind of cheesy movie. In some accounts, these misshapen birds are described as vicious man-eaters, vampire-like. It was one of Heracles' 12 labors to get rid of these monstrous birds. You also had amphibious water-dwellers. These included the dragon Chios, a huge sea beast that terrorized the island of that name, eating people and cattle. You also had the sea monster of Ethiopia, killed by the hero Perseus in a rescue of Princess Andromeda. And of course, that's, you know, you see that today in Clash of the Titans. Not all Greek monsters were represented as male. You actually do have a lot of females 
apparently the females are even scarier. One being Medusa. The snake-haired Medusa turned men to stone with a look. Just one of many, the Medusa was joined by various kinds of lamias, sharp-clawed sphinx, and creatures with women's upper body who attacked men and boys and sucked their blood. The Lamias were said to inhabit the deepest forest and woods of the ancient world. You also have the sea-dwelling Scylla and Charybdis. These two female scourges dragged down sailors making the crossing. Charybdis was represented as a man-eating gigantic virago, which is not very nice. It means a loud, overbearing woman who pulled down whole ships in her maw. Her cohort, Scylla, blasted ships and sailors with her six dog heads, nine rows of sharp, devouring teeth, and 12 muscular legs. You had the harpies and the furies, also presented as distinctly and disturbingly female. The harpies were foul-smelling, half-human, half-bird women who attacked travelers, stole their food, and befouled everything they touched. Virgil describes this in the Aeneid. No monsters more terrible than the harpies, no plague, no wrath of the gods more dire, surging upwards from the Stygian waters. They are birds with the faces of young girls. Disgusting filth comes from their stomachs. Their hands have claws, and they are always pale from hunger. Suddenly, with a fearful swoop from the mountains, they are upon us, and with a loud clang, they flap their wings, plunder the forest, make every dish filthy with their dirty hands. With their foul stench comes a hideous scream. You also had the furies who were hag-like creatures who had the head of a dog, a snake for hair, and bat wings. They persecuted and pursued all those poor souls whom the gods wished to torment. In addition, they also chased matricides, people who killed their mothers. In fact, that's part of this great play of Orpheus. Anyway, Orpheus, why does that sound strange? Anyway, we'll move on. Let's see. We do have dragons in ancient Greece. Trophies of these and other dragon quests were displayed for all to see. In an unidentified city, the Greeks called Paraka, possibly present-day Peshawar in Pakistan. You actually had some pretty cool stuff. Remains of dragons were on display, although they do think that it might have been bones of extinct animals such as the large giraffe and a moose-like quadruped as big as an elephant. So, again, animal bones from prior eras. Okay. And since the pugs are somewhat uncooperative again, they've kind of gone back and forth on this today, we are going to pause and take a break. And when we get back, we will deal with some good old-fashioned werewolves. So we'll be back right after these messages. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. I'm a U.S. Air Force member stationed overseas, and we have three rescued mutts. Stone Phillip was to be euthanized. There were bacteria crawling all over his skin. They called it elephant skin. It was rough, wrinkly, like a Brillo pad. He was in constant misery. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. We started feeding him the Dynavite, and his skin, it's a 180 turnaround. His skin has cleared up. He's not in pain. Stone is in excellent shape today. He runs, stays slim and trim, and follows my husband around like he worships him. I would highly encourage you to get a rescue dog. 
and start them out on Dynavite right from the beginning, and they'll make such a difference in your life. Call 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Or go to Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. Okay, and for this last little bit of Paranormal Pets and the end of this potpourri, we are going to talk a little bit about skinwalkers. Although I will add that I did recently read, oh boy, this was from Central Europe. It was pretty interesting. They were talking about how people born on Christmas could become werewolves. And there was this one couple that gave birth to a child on Christmas Day, and the whole neighborhood was very worried and upset. The child was wonderful, great kid except on Christmas, and then he would transform into a wolf. And I guess every year his family worked with him, and he would go out and he'd wander through the streets on that one day. The town apparently was willing to put up with him. They would lock their doors, let him, you know, roam around and kill all sorts of other things, but no humans. And then he would go home the next morning, turn back into a human for the rest of the year. He even found a wife who was willing to do that until deal with them, you know, so she helped clean them up every year. One year, however, they messed up. Apparently, uh, she opened the door too soon and tragedy struck. But it was kind of a cool story, something I had not heard before about people born on Christmas becoming werewolves. So for all of you December 25th babies, yikes. All right, so for the last little bit of our episode, I kind of felt like I ignored some of the um, skinwalker stuff. We touched on it, but I thought I'd elaborate just a little bit. This is actually a Navajo Skinwalker Legend from the NavajoLegends.org website. The Navajo Skinwalker Legend is one of more complex and terrifying stories seeped in mystery and evil intent. Many Navajos believe firmly in the existence of skinwalkers and refuse to discuss them publicly for fear of retribution. They believe skinwalkers walk freely among the tribe and secretly transform under the cover of night. The term yinaldushi, and my accent is bad, literally translates to with it, he goes on all fours. According to Navajo legend, a skinwalker is a medicine man or witch who has attained the highest level of priesthood in the tribe, but chose to use his or her power for evil by taking the form of an animal to inflict pain and suffering on others. To become a skinwalker requires the most evil of deeds, the killing of a close family member. They literally become humans who have acquired immense supernatural power, including the ability to transform into animals and other people. According to the Navajo skinwalker legend, these evil witches are typically seen in the form of a coyote, owl, fox, wolf, or crow, although they do have the ability to turn into any animal they choose. Because it is believed 
that skinwalkers wear the skins of the animals they transform into. It is considered taboo to wear the pelt of any animal. In fact, the Navajo are only known to wear two hides, sheepskin and buckskin, both of which are used for ceremonial purposes. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways in which the skinwalkers will try to inflict harm. Some describe hearing knocks on the windows or banging on walls. Others have spotted an animal-like figure peering in through the window. According to the Navajo skinwalker legend, they are seldom caught. Those who do track a skinwalker and learn their true identity must pronounce the name of the evil one in full. Once this happens, the skinwalker will get sick or die for the wrongs they have inflicted against others. And this is off of a the Demon Hunters compendium. The article is by Kyle German. And you can find this at www.demonhunterscompendium.blogspot.com. In the Navajo community, witchcraft is viewed with the highest contempt and is a very serious crime. But the most volatile and dangerous of these witches is the, and I don't know if I can do this one, Yendalushi, which translates as he with, uh, with it he goes on all fours, or he that walks like an animal. It is also known as the Michael or the Limikin. It is more commonly known by outsiders as the skinwalker. These people are witches that shapeshift into animals using magic animal skins. These people are evil to the core, bent on nothing more than destroying the lives of those around them. The skinwalker, while most commonly male, may be of either gender. Some are transvestites. As mentioned earlier, the skinwalker is a type of shapeshifter witch that uses the enchanted animal hides to initiate a transformation into any animal that they desire. But the most common animal form taken by the skinwalker are those of a wolf, a coyote, a fox, a dog, a cougar, a bear, a crow, or an owl. The shape taken by the witch depends on the sort of abilities that it may need for a given period of time. The skin of the wolf, the coyote, the dog, and the fox grant stamina, enhanced senses, and the ability to traverse great distances at speed, while the bear gives great strength, endurance, and formidable claws and teeth. The cougar's hide bestows speed, grace, and stealth, and the form of the crow and the owl gives keen vision, sharp talons, the ability to soar through the air without alerting anyone to its presence. The skinwalker may use its abilities to fight off or escape pursuers with the power of each animal given the decisive advantage in a life or death situation. It is said that the animal form of the skinwalker is larger and more powerful than any natural beast. To the Navajo, the skinwalker is regarded as having a preternatural degree of strength, speed, endurance, agility, and animalistic cunning, whilst the animal form, in addition to having human intelligence, this creature is said to be able to run faster than a car and is able to jump mesa cliffs with little effort. In addition to being a dark adept, that is, a practitioner of the dark arts, the skinwalker may be regarded as a sort of werebeast, one that is very similar to the European werewolf. In order to become a skinwalker, the witch must commit the unthinkable crime of killing a relative. This is a serious taboo to the Navajo people and is a terrible crime regardless of one's cultural heritage. It cares for no one other than itself, and it also kills out of greed, anger, envy, spite, or revenge. The creature resorts to grave robbery to increase its own personal wealth, as well as to collect much-needed ingredients for use in its own brand of black magic. Yet another common method of becoming wealthy is used by Navajo witches, which is the unethical practice of fee splitting. This is done when a skinwalker causes a victim to become ill and a healer, usually a witch himself, heals the victim. The healer is then paid and the culprits then split the proceeds, each taking half of his or her share. 
It is said that some particularly powerful skinwalkers have the power to steal the skin or body of a victim. By merely locking eyes with the intended victim, the skinwalker can absorb that person into his body, effectively enabling the creature to become that person at will. This may be somewhat like hypnosis, and the stronger the victim's will, the more difficult it is for the skinwalker to take possession of the victim's body. In theory, this absorption attempt may be able to be uh, resisted, although only if the victim's will is stronger than that of the skinwalker. When the skinwalker takes over a victim's body, it takes complete control, making the victim say and do things that are completely beyond their ability to control. And all the while, the victim remains fully conscious and alert to the horrors being committed with their body, and all the while being helpless to stop it. Exactly how this is done is not really known. However, the skinwalker's eyes may be the key to identifying the creature in its human form. The skinwalker will avoid bright light when it can, not because it causes the creature any harm, but because the eyes of a skinwalker burn red like the coals of a fire. That's a pretty good indicator. When the skinwalker is in animal form, its eyes do not glow at all. It is said that in addition to being able to shapeshift, the skinwalker is also able to control the creatures of the night and to make them do its bidding. Some skinwalkers are necromancers, able to call up the spirits of the dead and possibly reanimate the corpses of the recently dead to attack their enemies. The Navajo themselves absolutely refuse to touch a corpse for fear of accidentally summoning the shade of the deceased or making oneself vulnerable to the skinwalker's dark magic. Except for an animal skin, the skinwalker prefers to go about naked, even in the dead of winter. Because of this, the skinwalker's choice of shape-shifting into predatory animals, wearing the skins of those particular animals is a major taboo and is deeply frowned upon by the Navajo community. Wearing the hide of a sheep or a cow is acceptable, but if it, an individual should choose to wear the skin of a predator, he is liable to be accused of being a skinwalker. The skinwalker is also known for wearing the skulls of the animals it becomes in addition to the skin, which is said to bring additional power to a witch. Sometimes the skinwalker does not do evil of its own accord, but instead works under the will of another. Occasionally, a truly vile person will hire a skinwalker to perpetuate some evil deed, for which the skinwalker will be aptly rewarded. When it comes down to punishing the skinwalker if it is caught in the act, a rarity indeed, the Navajo law is very direct and straightforward when it comes to witchcraft. When a person becomes a witch, they immediately forfeit their humanity and their right to exist, and thus the skinwalker can be killed without any legal or moral consequences. The skinwalker and most Navajo witches are usually active at night when they are less likely to be seen, and they may conduct their profane rituals in secrecy. These rituals are the Native American equivalent of the European black masses, which undoubtedly involve bloodletting, sex, and desecration of religious icons. Navajo witchcraft itself is known as the witchy way in which the magic revolves around the use of human corpses and various concoctions that are designed to curse, harm, or even to kill an intended victim. The four basic ways of Navajo witch way are witchery, sorcery, wizardry, and frenzy. These ways have no connection to European witchcraft, but are merely additional pieces of Navajo spirituality. According to these beliefs, people must live in harmony with each other and the earth. It also teaches that there are two types of beings, the earth people, humans, and the holy people. These entities are invisible spirit beings that have the ability to either help or harm people. 
the Navajo also take a spiritual approach to sickness, disease, and personal problems. These things are believed to be due to disorders which are an individual's life, and they can be remedied with prayer, singing various herbs, help from a shaman, and traditional rituals. However, there is a dark side to the religion. While the shaman uses his knowledge to heal and to help his people, there are others like the skinwalker who use witchcraft to direct and control supernatural forces in order to cause harm, misfortune, sickness, or death to others. But despite this, Navajo witchcraft is only another aspect of the Navajo religion as a whole. So, just a little bit on some skinwalkers. You can actually read the rest of the article. That was only really about half of it. Again, it is on a blogspot, demonhunterscompendium.blogspot.com. It's actually a fairly interesting compilation of information. And, you know, it's about three years old, four years old. So it's been around a while. So with that, I think I think we're caught up. I think we're done with our potpourri. And uh, I'm happy to say we made it through this episode. So... With that summoning in mind, I think the pugs are desiring something at this point. I will wish you all happy haunting. Don't forget to support your local animal rescues. And uh, if you are curious about uh, St. Petersburg and its ghosts, please check out SPPI, St. Petersburg Paranormal Investigation at SPPI.net. Thank you and good night. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.